Hello and welcome to Reflections. I'm Rom Gaioso, your host. Today, our topic is competitive intelligence in healthcare. And I have the right person to talk to us about that, Nia Kamine. First and foremost, thank you so much for your being here with me and my guest today. I know your time is very important, and I'm the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. So remember, if you're watching us via television, via Futures Television, or on the radio, via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on the radio, you too can be part of the conversation. Please join us in our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to talk about the topic of the day. So uh, let's uh, let's get going. So my guest today is Nir Kamina. He's the founder of MedRev, and he's very passionate about healthcare. His focus on making sure patients get the best quality care possible. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome Nir to the show. How are you doing today, Nir? Good afternoon, Ron. Thanks for the invite. Everything is well. Wonderful. So wonderful to see you and thank you very much for uh, being here with me. Well, I hope I didn't do too bad of a job at the introduction, but could you please say a few words about yourself? Um, my name is Neil, Neil Camino, and I love in the summertime to go up the mountains and in wintertime to go down the mountains. Um, and for these objective reasons, uh, Munich is my home base for the last uh, 20 years because it's one of the best places in the world for uh, these kind of hobbies. That, so that's what took me over to Munich a long time ago. Uh, since then, I set foot here in this beautiful city, uh, living here with my uh, wife and uh, two daughters. And uh, for the last 15 years, more or less, I've been actively busy with uh, market and competitive intelligence in uh, here in Europe. And uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to found and set up a healthcare startup, um, which is run on parallel to my competitive intelligence uh, work. And it is nice. It gives me the opportunity to match these two passions together. Uh, with lots of uh, interfaces and lessons learned and practicalities that are from uh, that I took from competitive intelligence and I brought it into the area of our work in our in our startup. So that's a little bit uh, some background about myself before we dig in. Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about uh, competitive intelligence and specifically in healthcare. So why CI? Why does it make it so attractive to you that you decided to make? your entire life about that? Um, healthcare is one of those gigantic business um, that unless you're involved in it, it kind of goes unnoticed unless you become a patient or you're actively act, uh, a healthcare practitioner. But if you're not, you don't even realize the magnitude of this, uh, of this industry everywhere in the world, in the advanced countries, in the less developed countries as well. Um, the most fascinating aspect of um, healthcare from competitive intelligence perspective, and I'm sure from other aspects as well, is the complexity um, in this uh, the complexity in this uh, in this market. It's not uh, structured and it's not so uh, uh, easy as to describe it as other industries where you have the manufacturers, the clients, the suppliers, etc. Healthcare comprise of, 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 of payers that are the insurance companies. You have doctors, you have providers, you have lobbying groups, authorities, regulators. It is very complex uh, setup. And at the end of the day, 
we're not talking about business and money, uh, but by patients and people that want to become healthier and get back to their normal lives. So it is a very, it is big, fascinating, extremely dynamic and complex uh, business. And in order to get into this business and to succeed in this, you really need to have a good grasp of the market, a uh, good grasp of your competitors, your clients, your prospective clients, etc. So the value of competitive market and competitive intelligence, obviously it is important in any business, in any industry. However, from my perspective, specifically in healthcare, it even has significantly higher significance and important to make sure things are done right, quality, time, and price. Wonderful. We want to change subjects a little bit. So you wrote an article at the last uh, issue of IMCI magazine, and that was uh, explaining how to use, you know, website, you know, visitors' data. Could you please say a few words about that article? What's that all about? Um, everyone is familiar with the Google Google Web Analytics and the similar tools that give you excellent data about the the, the, the high volume, the big trends in terms of your website uh, visitors. How many visitors from where they came from how much time they spent on your website how did they get to the website from linkedin from facebook from other social media from what search tool they got into your website it's really great and valuable um, valuable information however um it is oil in high volume with a certain usage of it but there is a new area there's there is an area um that is called web visitors tracking and identifying and it not only gives you the, 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 the it, it is it is not overlapping but it is give you a whole added layer of information and intelligence and insight um, about the identity of the visitors to your website now before people are jumping about privacy and things like this it doesn't give you the information about the name of the person that visited your website just from which corporation from which organization he visited your website. So there's no issue here from privacy, GDPR, or anything like uh, anything like this. It just tells you that someone visited your website from this or that uh, from this or that uh, company. So there's significant amount of value here because it turns the analysis of uh, and the tracking of the people that visited your website not in not only just as nice to know information, but really concrete actionable um, actionable uh, intelligence the way it works from technical perspective it is basically it is a if you have a website you know the ip address of all the companies of all the visitors that they go to this website so these providers basically they have a database that is matching ip addresses matching ip addresses to names of uh, to names of corporations so it tells you lots of information about specific visitors to your uh, to your website and it has a tremendous number of uh, use cases i just decided in the article and now just to to, to focus on um, on few of those um, uh, use cases or, or value added from visitors uh, web visitors analytics first of all in terms of leads generation um you can analyze this and look who from your prospective uh, customers or your existing customers looked at your website what they were looking at your webs at uh, what information they were looking at your website were they looking at product specifications 
whether looking at pricing, uh, pricing information, services, packages, and things like this. So you can see exactly who from your prospect is really interested in uh, what you have to, to offer. Personally, I attended a couple of meetings, conferences, and in preparation for a meeting or after a meeting, you see if the, the, the counterparts that you met with, if they didn't even trouble to look at your website, you know that they are not really serious uh, about having any follow-ups. Wherever if you see that different people from that company that you met with actually visited your website and looked at different parts of the website, you see, okay, there is some serious interest. There. So it's a good tool to, to um, it's a good way to basically for leads generation. Um, Another aspect is the competitor's insight. Many companies have situations that they are bidding, that they are going to, to tenders or campaigns or bid situations, and they don't know who the competitors are. And really knowing who the competitors are, a big advantage in, in terms of the competition. And if suddenly you start seeing a suspicious activity from a potential competitor that is looking at the specific the same product um, that is relevant for the bid, um, it gives you a good uh, good chances that they are your competitors. So this is just one example of the value from competitors inside by knowing who actually is looking at your who actually is looking at your website. Um, another valuable aspect is uh, from uh, employment uh, for recruiting an employee's perspective because you can see what visitors to the job site section. So you see, from which universities people come to your website, from which companies people come to your website and look specifically at job news, job bulletins, uh, about us and career opportunities with us. Um, so nice insight that help you focus uh, recruiting campaigns based on these uh, interested, uh, based on this insight about interested parties. And the last point that I mentioned in the article is about Markom. So the Markom teams, it gives you uh, effectiveness uh, measurements of uh, different campaigns that you are doing, online campaigns, uh, usage trend, who is visitor, visiting us, how many competitors, how many uh, clients are looking at us, prospective clients. Uh, just an anecdote in a recent project I completed, uh, they suddenly realized that about 95% of the visitors to the news section is uh, competitors. So most of the work about the news content, actually you're feeding information to your competitors, which is something uh, nice, to, nice to know. So there are many different tools that are helping with the website visitors tracking. Um, you can just uh, Google and find them. They all offer more or less the same, uh, the same uh, solution, which I love and I try to bring it to the awareness of every one of my, uh, every one of my interactions. So this is just a few points about the last uh, articles that was uh, what, that was published in the last issue of the magazine. Wonderful, and I know you're not an attorney, but we're getting lots of questions. The moment you said, you know, website data. So, uh, so Facebook, hello, and thank you so much for your questions. So basically, uh, a few questions. So they're saying, well, uh, the U.S. has some rules. Uh, California has different rules from the U.S. The U.K. has different rules from all of us, and then there is. GDPR in Europe. So uh, what is some kind of a best practice? Do we kind of default to the uh, to the most stringent of the regulations and, and think we're okay? Or, because how do we keep track of, of so many rules so that people are asking, well, if we're using website data, how do you know it's kosher or not? How do you know we can actually uh, do this or we are in some kind of violation? Um, 
I did uh, two or three pro deployment projects like this, and uh, the whole aspect on the technology and how it is being done was totally scrutinized and checked and confirmed by the legal and compliance teams in Europe. In Europe, and GDPR is very, very tight and strong about privacy. The thing is that from process perspective, um, someone walked into your shop basically, so a certain individual had an interest and reached out to you by visiting your website. Um, this, from GDPR perspective, entitles you to know from which company he came from. Now, again, important to note, you never know the name and the specific individual that was looking into your website. So, for example, if it is someone that is that logged in that went into your website and is sitting in a sitting in an ibm facility in uh, amsterdam um all you know is someone from ibm in the netherlands was looking at your website you are not able it is beyond the scope it is not possible to to identify that particular individual so all you get is someone from ibm looking at your website and then the rest of the information what did he do what section of the website he looked at how did he get there? Why, at what point he left? How much time he spent on each area, etc. So um, by matching, matching the IP address of the visitor to a certain corporation name, there is absolutely no violation here from a GDPR or any other privacy perspective. However, from experience, the, these providers are very good at providing the legal recommendations and the process and the technology behind this so it's better, if in doubt, to check it with your privacy and with your legal team. These providers will be more than glad to help you and provide you all the necessary information to make sure you're not even getting into any gray zone from a legal perspective. Wonderful. So different kinds of questions are coming up here. So uh, is there any significant difference? So between some countries have socialized medicine and others do not, right? So perhaps the, the market uh, on a country that does not have socialized medicine for healthcare companies much bigger than otherwise. So do you see any significant differences in the way you do your competitive intelligence activities in a country that has socialized medicine, say, you know, Canada versus uh, a country that does not? Um, from CI perspective, I don't think there is any difference because in terms of the systems and tools and how we look at what we look at what we want to find etc it doesn't matter if they have uh, if they have uh, public insurance if they have uh, on, if they only have public insurance such as in Canada or uh, countries like the UK or many of the European countries that have a very large uh, uh, private sector as well um, so it doesn't, the, the structure in the market, the major players, the legal framework, the healthcare system does not have any impact on how we approach the market from a CI perspective. Systems, tools, methods, uh, approaches are uh, the same irrespective of the structure of the market. The way the, 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 the conclusions, of course, are tremendously different. It depends on the, on the findings. Um, but other than this, the approach is, I think, is fairly standardized. Wonderful. So at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about your two passions, so competitive intelligence and healthcare. I think we talked a little bit about competitive intelligence. I wanted to switch to the other passion. So you started a healthcare company, you know, MedRev. And so can you tell us a little bit about 
that. So what is your mission and what are you trying to achieve with MedRef? Okay. My favorite topic. Um, oh, you said you have two passions. So I, we talked about yeah. one. Let's talk about the <laughs> At other least one. one of them. Um, MedRef is about improving global healthcare and reduce unnecessary care. And uh, in practice, we are providing high volume of uh, second medical opinion and data insight uh, services um, that is focused on tackling the problem of overutilization of healthcare services. And overutilization of overutilization of healthcare services means any any intervention, any surgery, any diagnostic procedure um, that does not necessarily yield better results to the patients and is done most of all for financial uh, reasons rather than healthcare benefits for the for the patients. And the overutilization is the major driver of the ever-increasing healthcare costs. Now, even before the current crisis in Europe and before COVID the pandemic, um, healthcare costs were in constant uh, increase, constantly increased by rate much larger than, uh, than the intake of new, intake of new uh, members to companies, uh, higher than the inflation levels. And the number one driver for the ever-increasing costs was overuse and services, procedures, etc., that are not medically necessary and that they are cheaper and better and more conservative alternatives that at the end of the day make the patient back on his feet at the same time or even faster than, uh, than uh, these interventions without sending the patient to, to hospital and create unnecessary stress and create unnecessary costs to the, to the systems. So this is kind of the mission of uh, MedRev. And the way, the point where it is interfacing in a way with, um, uh, with competitive intelligence is technology. Um, and what I mean by that is that in healthcare systems, there are many different solutions, technologies, uh, uh, artificial intelligence components, software, automated software, that the main purpose is to verify and to authorize claims, patient's claim. You, you, you need a surgery, you send the information to your insurance provider and they approve it. And in most cases, the approval is done by machines. Uh, certain parameters, very advanced, great machines, not trying to undermine these. However, um, technology has its limits. And same in healthcare and what we're doing in claims area and same in generally speaking in competitive intelligence, which is one of the points that I will touch upon later. Um, but when you take some of those claims that were approved by all those systems and tools and smart uh, AI solutions, when you're giving it to a human, to a specialist, to a real doctor, um, the findings are mind blowing. Um, what we see is from the cases that we review that were approved by all those tools, if a real doctor is looking at the case, um, sometimes more than 40% of the cases, in some instances, 50 or 60% of the cases are actually not medically necessary. And when, it, when we say not medically necessary, it means it's, it doesn't bring any benefits. It is putting the patients under unnecessary risk and it generates unneeded uh, costs to, to the systems. 
So with all respect to technology that is doing most of the work and is very helpful, at the end of the day, if a real human is looking at it, the findings are much better and the value is much, um, is much stronger because they can find things that the machines just cannot learn. It is right for claims review and authorization. It is right also for many aspects of competitive intelligence that I will touch upon in a second. So this is basically what Medrev is, uh, what Medrev is doing, tackling overutilization, improving healthcare provisioning, and help save our clients significant amounts of uh, significant amount of money. Now, so is this information available to the public? Can they see this? Um, it is patients' data, and patients' data, by its nature, is the most sensitive from all the aspects from HIPAA, from GDPR perspective. So the information is only shared with our clients. However, the accumulated information. Um, when we say that we did an audit, for example, for spine uh, surgeries in a certain countries, and spine surgery, you don't need to be a doctor to know that this is one of the most complicated surgeries. Um, you never really fully recover from a spine surgery, uh, but more than 80% of the spine surgeries could have been avoided. Um, this is something that is interesting for the public. So we have our channels of uh, communicating uh, communicating such uh, results without revealing, obviously, any sensitive data about a patient or a client. We're getting questions about uh, um, technology war. So basically, uh, so the the questions boil down to so uh, we find you know so nowadays medicine is a business, right? So lots of times, yeah, in many cases, uh, you know. The procedure wasn't really necessary, but it was recommended, was approved, and uh, and they went through that. So let's say, and you said, you know, uh, some decent amount of that is true and can be verified. So even though that is reported, so they're mentioning a specific service. So this is a U.S. kind of question. I don't know exactly if you have a, a comparable in Europe, something called uh, Reputation Defender. So it's a special. So um, it's technological war. So there's a special service that you hire. So let's say um, I'm one of those guys that, you know, prescribes, uh, you know, procedures that uh, are really not necessary. And I'm known for that, but I pay the reputation defender and what the reputation defender does, it goes and takes all my reviews and puts on Google page 199. So it's still out there, but it's invisible uh, to, to the public. So um, the technological warfare you are uncovering this information, right? And we are trying to improve the healthcare. But on the other hand, so there's the good guys and the bad guys. So the bad guys are saying, well, this thing may exist, but I will disclose it to you, but on page 199 on Google, so which means it's buried uh, elsewhere. So do you think this is, uh, this is here to stay? Uh, so this race between uh, people trying to get the best possible care and a lot of people are asking about you know, getting information and improving and getting ownership of their own your their own treatments, right? Versus uh, the the people or the businesses that are out there that kind of trying to conceal this information and, and bury it um, down down somewhere. Um, oof. You can do a PhD in answering this question, and it will still have uh, different questions. Um, first of all, I would like to say. I, I don't think that there are good guys and bad guys here. Yes, of, of course, there are lots of fraud incidents as well that are some fascinating. This is a subject of a complete independent presentation, healthcare fraud uh, in different parts of the world. Um, but I wouldn't like to, I, I don't think it's right to, 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 to put, to categorize it as good guys and, uh, and bad guys, because also from those that are 
uh, uh, recommending unnecessary, unnecessary services. Uh, maybe they have the clinical reasons, but overall it is, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is an extremely complicated setup. And in most cases, there is no black and white, there's no right or wrong questions because at the end of the day, most of the cases are falling in the gray zone. And as you say, someone did some work and he publishes it and he wants people to know and he doesn't want people to know. It's extremely delegate, extremely complicated. Um, most of our operations are actually so-called in the gray zone. And what we want to make is to create the, an awareness that there is an alternative course of action and to create a dialogue between the treating physician and the patient that there is an alternative way and then they talk about it, and that kind of uh, uh, floats an alternative course of action, and this is what we are trying to, to get. Um, so I don't think there is a one simple right or wrong answer here to, to, to put it into a certain group or category. Okay, so a different kind of question here is, so uh, you talked about medical procedures, but here in the U.S., so, I mean, I'm getting U.S.-centric questions. Uh, there's a, a big scandal about opioid addiction so the overprescription of uh, of, of uh, yeah. you know medicines would uh, something like that uh, be possible i mean you you're monitoring uh, procedures but is there a way to monitor overprescription of certain drugs like absolutely. the opioids yeah, absolutely part of the work is uh, i mean uh, pharmaceutical and the prescription regimen is one of the highest highest utilized areas and medication that are just not necessary, uh, medications regimen that are actually contradicting uh, each other, uh, medication that are not suitable for patients for uh, whatever reasons. Um, there are alternative, uh, uh, not original, uh, not original uh, 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 products, of course, that have cheaper, uh, cheaper alternative. So the whole area of pharmaceutical uh, pharmaceutical uh, reviews is rather big, and the numbers as well are, uh, uh, in terms of the potential savings for for uh, companies, and is especially talking about the, the opioid addiction. We're not money is not important here. It's just no matter how many lives would have been saved if someone external without financial incentive would have come and say hold on guys, does this person really need so many painkillers in such a short amount of, uh, of time? So absolutely, if there was tighter control on that, of that, uh, the problem would have still been there, but it wouldn't be a problem that killed thousands of people in the US as it was. Analogous question. Uh, so uh, again, going back to the information war, so the question is, so we, again, another U.S. question. Uh, we have, well, we had here and we still have um, a big war in the media about information and disinformation about vaccines. And I think the issue is similar in Europe. So the anti-vaxxers and people who basically say, well, it's going to kill you. There's a bunch of things. So would a system like that help us distribute, uh, you know, unbiased information and kind of help quench those kinds of you know disinformation campaigns well that's a very sensitive topic as well because uh, from the from the party or the army of the anti-vaccines um there are lots of really good reputable doctors that called against it 
Um, and it, I don't think that uh, a, a process like this of reviewing, etc., would have helped here because it is such a sensitive, hot topic and each side, the pro and the against, will bring the army of doctors and army of experts. And the biggest problem I personally see in this area is that decisions are being made based on social media. And no political, no medical, and no business decision should be made, should be made based on social media because the bigger you shout and the bigger the number of followers you have, news are distributed so quickly and then people see something that have absolutely no stance with reality um, and they make decisions based on this, for and against. I see this as a much bigger problem, actually, um, the decisions and important decisions about people's lives sometimes are made based on waves and trends in uh, in social media. And there's absolutely no, no control, no cross-reference, no reference to any facts um, when it comes to this. And then during the pandemic, we've seen many campaigns of famous doctors that says that this is all a you know, conspiracy by Bill Gates, etc. And then when you look at the name of this expert, of this doctor, you see that he doesn't even exist and there's no name like this. But still people were did not want to take the vaccine because they saw that this big doctor said that it is not uh, recommended. So it is very, very sensitive. Yeah, there's information warfare uh, happens uh at and uh, in healthcare like in many other many other fields so i think that's why people are so concerned and i think you touched on a very important point in there which is the role of the media i think the media needs to step up you know i work in media but i think it's important that we do a better job at managing uh, this kind of information because there's, there's so much disinformation going on out there it is a disservice to the public so i think it's important that you know we all point on hey you can't just go around, you know, yelling fire. You know, uh, you know, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's funny. We spoke about it in a conference a couple of weeks ago that um, 10, 15 years ago, as I say, today it's back in the old days, 10 years ago. If you argue or if you make a decision, and say, well, I saw it in the news, or saw it on the news, mm-hmm. or I, I I I read it on the internet. I'm like, oh, okay, then it really happened. Then it's real. Today it has nothing to do with reality. You could see something and the front page of the new york times and then it's a hoax and it's not real and it is based on false uh information so today really every piece of information when it comes to healthcare when it comes to competitive intelligence when it comes to business decision have to be cross-referenced double triple check before you make any uh, any decisions of course Okay, so I want to ask you a different kind of question. So you do have a very strong background in competitive intelligence and in healthcare, your two passions, right? So, and people uh, tend to think, oh, this is a thing for um, the big guys, just for large companies, right? So how how important is it? So competitive intelligence to a small startup, and is it different from a large corporation? Um. Competitive intelligence, market intelligence, market and competitive intelligence obviously is important for, uh, for, for everyone. However, I've been doing competitive intelligence for large organizations and for very, for small companies and even for startups uh, or startups. And I would say that um, it is even more important for, um, for a startup. And I'll tell you why. Um, the way decisions are being made 
in a startup or in a very small company are often gut feeling of the founder of all the decision makers. So it is one or two people and it is often based on gut feelings. And if you really deeply ask people um, to put their hand on their heart and decide why they decided, why they decide that Spain will be the next market for their corporate uh, growth, they'll tell you, I like Spanish food and I like going on holiday to Spain. And that's why I decided, I looked at the numbers and it looked logical for us to go to, to, go to Spain, an extreme uh, example. But the decisions that are made in a small companies are often made based on, on, on gut feeling and not necessarily through a clear, good thought process and decision-making process where you have conflicting interests, you have people that are challenging the decisions. Um, uh, as as in a large uh, as in a large company, um, founders of small companies often make certain assumptions or hypotheses um, about how the how the business should be developed, and even if their market insight, their competitive intelligence, the market intelligence that they did uh, does not correspond with these assumptions. They just ignore the signals that they get from the market or they look for a different information that will support their gut feeling. Um, and that's why the, the, the simple answer here is it is extremely important for large corporations, but even more so for startups and small companies. Because the way decisions are made, you need to have good intelligence and follow the intelligence, the signals and the direction that the analysis give you. And you make sure that the gut feeling is is following the messages that you get from intelligence perspective, rather than the the other way, uh, rather than the other way around. Um, and I'm a sinner for this myself. I'm looking at the company expansion to a certain country in South Africa, where in in Africa, not South Africa, but another African country, where all the signals were not necessarily supportive of this move. And my gut feeling was, like, yes, but it is big and it is growing. We should give an attempt there. And uh, we wasted a good few months of work because I didn't interpret and I didn't listen good enough to the intelligence that was uh, gathered about the market. Um, so, yeah, so this is my, uh, my answer to this question. It is incredibly important for everyone, but in particular, even more to, so to, to small startups and small corporations. Yeah, I think you touched on a very important point in there. So, you know, the big corporation can afford to make one, two, and ten mistakes, and it's okay. Correct. But Correct. the startup, if makes one false move, maybe you know that's that's the end of it's the me. line, right? Correct. Correct. That's a, that's of course another another point that the big corporations can make a different can make mistakes, whereas one strategic mistake by a small company can be devastating to its future. And one important point that you made, and, and I thank you so much for you know being so forthcoming and transparent. You know, so we all you know make such mistakes, and we don't admit them, right? But yeah, maybe it was gut feeling. We weren't really following what the intelligence said. But I think it's important that you continuously monitor. And even though this is what we want to do, as we continuously monitor, as it turns out, it wasn't exactly what we should have done. So there's uh, the presence of CI allows us to course correct right so it wasn't well we 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 want really wanted this we did it yeah but it didn't really work so we we have a chance to correct isn't it correct correct uh sometimes you have the benefit of being able to trial and error uh 
if you're lucky enough, if you're strong and resilient enough and you have the necessary resources, but definitely, yes. Um, the important thing is that, uh, you know, we all make mistakes. The important thing is not to repeat the same mistakes once. We'll always do mistakes, but learn from the mistakes and do others down the road, but accumulated experience from making, a, not repeating the same mistake twice. Yeah, hopefully we learn. So uh, a different kind of question. So you worked across industries, you know, uh, in different cultures, in different countries. So what are some of the key issues you find today that competitive intelligence and practitioners are facing? So what are those things? Is, you know, those are the key issues that we have to address. Oof, where should we start? Okay. Um, couple of points. I think there are probably four, four key areas that I want to touch upon uh, in this uh, answering these questions. Um, before that, my uh, just a general observation. From my experience, the U.S. practitioners and the companies, the American companies in the area of CI, are way ahead of uh, Europe. Um, USA is much more advanced in adapting uh, CI practices in terms of the intelligence function visibility to decision makers and ability to swing decisions it is much stronger in the us than in uh, europe and it's funny because i think just a few days ago uh, ben gilad uh, put us wrote about it on linkedin saying that many european companies do not understand the true value of competitive intelligence and uh, competitor inform uh, competitor intelligence is basically looking at websites of competitor informations and uh, the practitioners are just archiving and distributing the information. So my observation is about European companies where most of my CI exposure was to. Um, the number one problem I see is uh, uh, technology over-reliance. The over-reliance, the blind reliance on technology. Uh, people became too comfortable with the uh, technology already before the pandemic and now even during the pandemic just working from home in front of their computers um, lazy to do anything else such as picking up the phone and talking to people looking for primary intelligence um, many many intelligence professionals spend not most but hundred percent of the time just going through OSIN, going through open sources uh, intelligence and buying secondary uh, reports um, that are useless because everyone else buys the same report. So there's no added value. There's no added benefit here for you. And um, technology is great. The technology with a press of a button, you can, you can, you can find, edit, translate, uh, create newsletters, etc. It looks good. It's easy. People like it. Uh, but is it really what we want to, to achieve? Uh, it is an enabler, but having the good technologies would not provide great market and competitive intelligence insight that companies want to. Uh, so number one is the, 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 the over-reliance on technology. The other aspect is lack of human, lack of human intelligence and strive to get primary intelligence uh, resources. Um, there is, as I mentioned before, there is over-reliance on technology and on secondary information. Um, and there is very limited knowledge and know-how and tools and approaches on how to obtain primary information, mostly from people. 
And the best example of this I've seen in a couple of different industry conferences when I know that in these conf- conferences, exhibitions, trade shows, etc. For me personally, this is the battleground of competitive intelligence. This is where you see the competitors. This is where you see your clients. This is where you see your prospective clients. You should spend all the time there running back and forth and forth on the floors, on the exhibitions, talking to people, etc. And in conferences, you sometimes see the market and the competitive intelligence people sitting at their corporate uh, area and opening their laptops. So I said, why did you come to the conference in order to sit on your laptop? You can do this back in your in your office. So the, 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 there is some kind of a fear or lack of know-how how to engage with people for intelligence, how to use human intelligence, which is, for me, is the most underutilized asset of uh, the intelligence tools that we have. Um, the third point I wanted to touch is uh, to touch upon is data abundance. Um, many competitive intelligence professionals, so to say, they are what I call the copy-paste masters. Um, there is abundance of information and the people create never-ending reports um, with too much of irrelevant data. I have seen what is called project intelligent reports, intelligence report that are 80, 90, 100, 150 pages long of useless information that 99% of this is copy-paste from competitor, competitors' uh, websites, news clips, uh, websites, data, etc. 50 pages of share price analysis, uh, different data sheets, because there's just so much information there, but zero value from intelligence perspective. And internally, inside corporations, people see, oh, that's a big, really, that's a big report. Well done. It looks great. Uh, the people get appreciation for generating such a deep and long report. Does it have any value? Does it have any actionable intelligence? Does it change the course of what we want to do? Absolutely, absolutely nothing. So we are just drowning in data and it is incredibly incredibly difficult to identify the important data and then interpret it into actionable intelligence. Um, the last point I want to touch, which may be the most controversial, is um, in many companies, it's the teams or the functions are called market and competitive intelligence, but the word intelligence is just not there. There's no intelligence in the work whatsoever. Um, we're all familiar with the, the different the, the iceberg picture where only 10 or 15% of it is outside the water and the rest is under the, under the water. Um, and from my experience in Europe, across different industries and market, etc., um, the real CI professionals are only a handful of people um, and in the iceberg example, these are the people that are above the above the waterline. And the vast majority of people are working in a sleepy so-called intelligence uh, intelligence uh, function. Um, people in CI roles that are doing the same for years, but they never spoke to any primary resource. Um, all the work is based on uh, open source intelligence. Uh, they were never exposed to new tools, ideas, experts, 
training or things like this. And in my belief, you cannot be regarded a competitive intelligence professional if you did not meet, spoke, or heard um, of uh, Ben Gilad, Avner Barnea, Arthur Weiss, uh, Rainer Michaeli, or if you don't know what his skip is, it's difficult to be an intelligence uh, professional. We, we, we hear many, I hear many companies saying, oh, we have great uh, competitive intelligence functions, uh, function and it really works great. What does it do in practice? Creating uh, weekly reports and distributing it across the across the board of the company. Um, so these are the four areas. There are of, of, of course much more a, a longer list, but what I wanted to focus is in terms of observations and things that we should improve is the, the to lower the reliance on technology, to tap into humans as source of primary information, uh, finding, knowing how to find the the, 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 this, the needle in the haystack because of there's so much data and abundance and to start using, the, to start practicing the word intelligence in market and competitive um, intelligence. Yeah, I think you made so many uh, good points in there. And I think that perhaps one of the key ones is, is indeed the word intelligence. So people confuse, you know, sending, you know, um, uh, Google Google websites with intelligence. So I think we need to kind of go back to reinforcing, you know, connecting the dots. What does it mean? What's the implication of whatever uh, we're sending on this on this newsletter to the business? So, so what does it mean? How does it affect us? So this is the, the true work of intelligence and people sometimes miss the boat. I think oh, we sent the newsletter. That's intelligence. I've seen it. You, you just say sometimes. Um, if you're looking at the majority of the people that are in, in, in dealing with competitive intelligence in big corporations, I've seen teams of 10, 12, 15 people that are in the market intelligence, and this is all they do. And five years ago, their boss went to a skip conference, and that's it. And that's it. And many of these people are people that are doing it for, for many years. And yeah, that's why I call it the copy-paste uh, masters. Uh, but but the whole analysis, uh, the intelligence part of the work is just not there. What I say to my clients is that my reports are usually very small and should intelligence report should be straight to the point, answering the question of so what, what impact does it have on us? If a piece of information doesn't have any actionable impact on us, it's not important. Uh, it's not important for me in most cases. So looking for the action, looking for the intelligence, this is what I uh, this is what I miss to see in many large corporations here. And I think it's important for us to also uh, reinforce one of the other points that you made here. So this is really a discipline. So it requires you know training, thought, methodology. So you mentioned you know a few, but like Ben's uh, Academy or you know there's a, a bunch of resources out there. Or you know Institute of Competitive Intelligence. You know Ryan Michaeli runs some fantastic events. Yep. Uh, of course, so there are many resources out there. And for us professionals, the field itself is changing all the time. So we too have to go back and study and learn. So it's a continuous learning and improvement. We can say, well, I, I, I went to a skip conference five years ago. I'm done. That, that, that doesn't work anymore, right? <laughs> no. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that there are thousands of people in competitive intelligence across Europe 
but surprise, surprise, when you go to the Skip European Summit, so to 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 the Institute of Competitive Intelligence uh, seminars, you actually see quite familiar faces time and again. And we need to find to crack the method how to drill it, how basically based on the example of the water of the iceberg, to lift the iceberg up so that more and more people will be exposed to news, developments, seminars, training, expertise, professional seminars about competitive intelligence and stop stop just this copy and paste and really how to do analysis, how to do analysis and, and implications and insight uh, that will help the business as a whole and us as CI professionals as well. Yeah, and so that's one of the things I really enjoy doing is talking to people, you know, about the conferences, what's going to happen. So, you know, I talked to Arthur Weiss and said, what are you going to be talking about? And he's, oh, and then he goes off and this is what we're going to be talking about, the conference. I think we, we should do a better job at, at promoting those kinds of events to the community at large so that, you know, others say, well, you know what? Let's take that time. Let's take that one hour a month, let's take two hours a month and invest on ourselves in training in education and attending a seminar. And perhaps it's just, you know, um, asking a colleague or, or someone like you, you know what, uh, could you share one paper that and it would be useful for me? And, and doing those kinds of activities, I mean, like a brown bag lunch, you know, it, would, it doesn't cost a whole lot to buy, you know, a, a pizza pie and split with people and say, well, let's, let's learn a little bit. Well, when talking about conferences, you are going to one, right? Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the conference, the upcoming conference, and what they're going to be talking about. Um, actually, it's touching a little both and some of the points that I'm talking about. Um, uh, it, it's a healthcare conference, and, and it is coming from a, a focus on technology and innovation. And I'm coming with my message and my awareness presentation about uh, hold back our horses with reliance on uh, technology and actually we are going actually to speak about uh, medrev and our value proposition and what we are doing um in a way of uh, most of the other vendors in this conference are going to talk about claims automation uh, approval uh, automation and how ai and machine learning tools can help you with uh, with the authorized uh, authorized the, the claims um, and we are saying, use these tools. These are great tools, very sophisticated, cost million and save you lots of money. However, let's not be blindly folded and, and follow only that route. Um, we need to speak to people. We need to speak to experts. We need to speak to doctors that every once in a while will tap into the process, look at some of the claims or high volume of claims and show you the gaps between what actually the, the needs of the patients are, what the system needs, what the insurance companies needs. So the gaps between these and what are the, and the capabilities of the technology. So there is limit to what technology can do. In this conference, we're going to present some uh, business cases that shows how many cases were approved, so to say, by, uh, by those technologies. But at the same time, when a physician, when a specialist looked at them, he says, absolutely not. Not medically necessary, not yield the best uh, patient uh, outcome. It, it's against the safety of the patient and an alternative should have been uh, made there. So this is a kind of combination of humans and technology uh, and the limits of, um, of each aspect of this. So that's the subject of our presentation next, at the end of this month. 
Wonderful. And, and now I'm going to get in trouble. So you're in Munich and it's almost October. October 1st is coming. So what's your favorite beer? Uh, what, what is October 1st? I'm not familiar with the term. Um, <laughs> um, we missed uh, Oktoberfest for the last uh, two years, and um, it, it's a fascinating event here in, uh, in Munich. There are people that are actually saving holidays um, in order to spend them during the Oktoberfest. You have here a whole set of people at every age and financial status that uh, people that uh, live through the night in the during the Oktoberfest to the to the event and the after parties and they sleep during uh, during the day for these two weeks of um, of the event uh there are five or seven main uh, breweries here i'm not a beer concierge but i would say that paulaner which one of the bigger brand names here is my favorite in terms of the tent that they have and the beer it's fairly light uh, so I, this is my favorite and we are all looking forward to uh, Oktoberfest in, uh, at the end of the month. We're not going to have a fight. So mine is Habe. So uh, it's okay. We can still uh, yeah. cheers in, in, and have a great time. So, <laughs> you know, we still have lots of other comments, which uh, I will forward to you and we'll address them. So, you know, nice. we've talked about today is just a little bit about the, you know, the event and a little bit about healthcare, a little bit about competitive intelligence. You know, uh, so it seems we had a wonderful conversation today. I want to thank you, Neil, coming out. Thank you so much for your time today. And so, folks, we're really just scratching the surface here. We can certainly continue this conversation, but I'm afraid that's all the time uh, we have for today. So please visit www.medrev.com, and that is M-E-D-R-E-V dot C-O-M, for more information on its service and how it helps patients get the best possible care. So let me say a few words about some upcoming events. Uh, so of course, I have uh, Jerome Glemmins coming to talk about the state of the future. Uh, we have more talks about technology, the metaverse, sustainability. Uh, the Institute of Competitive Intelligence has one upcoming event, and so does Frost and Sullivan. So by the way, please uh, continue uh, and feel free to continue to submit your comments and your questions. I'm sorry, uh, that's all the time I have for today, but I will continue to address them uh, with Neil coming there. I'll make sure to read all of them and present to him so he will be able to respond. If you're listening to us via podcast or watching this show as a recording via Futures Television or listening to the show on Radio Futures, you too can be part of the conversation. Again, just visit our YouTube channel and leave a comment. Please don't forget to share and like this video and do subscribe to our channel. I am uh, counting on you. It is time uh, for us to start saying uh, our goodbyes. Again, thank you so very much for your presence with me and your coming up today and for your participation, your questions and your comments. Uh, you can always reach out to me, to the magazine, the host, via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube. I am looking forward to seeing you again soon in another edition of Reflections. And I'm going to leave you with our institutional message. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>